Welcome to Cyberside Chats from Epic, a global legal services provider. Hosted by Jarek Beeson, Chief Information Security Officer at Epic, Cyberside Chats is where professionals come to hear CISO and industry leader insights on the latest news and trends for cybersecurity and privacy in the legal industry. Welcome to our first Epic Cyberside Chat. We are excited to start developing content for and by the legal and privacy industries. My name is Jarek Beeson. I'm a senior vice president and the chief information security officer over at Epic, and I will be your host. We have a great show for you guys today, and we are recording this in February, which is National Privacy Month. And in the spirit of the month, we are going to chat about privacy implications of the new Biden administration. We're also going to tackle the intersection of privacy and artificial intelligence. This should be a fun one. We have our guest today is Michael Mangold. His resume and list of accolades are impressive. He is a seasoned attorney, an Ivy League trained cybersecurity professional. He's advised CISOs, chief privacy officers, and other business leaders on strategy, compliance, operations, and risks related to cybersecurity and privacy. He's also a certified fellow of information privacy. Michael has presented and authored and co-authored on numerous papers on cybersecurity. In fact, him and I co-authored a paper on cybersecurity due diligence in the merger and acquisitions process. I think that was a couple years ago, right? That's right. When he uh, and I met about four years ago as consultants, kind of developed a relationship and it's culminating into this conversation today. And I can tell you uh, from experience that the battle stories and more importantly, battle wounds between us are too many to count. Well, since he has left the life of a road warrior, and today he is the head of privacy and compliance for a little-known company called YouTube. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Derek. I appreciate that. I, I noted that it is privacy um, month, of course, in February, but my big complaint about that is I always wanted it to overlap with Talk Like a Pirate Day. I felt like that would be far more interesting for the profession. <laughs> well, you have all the opportunity to talk as you want uh, <laughs> for the guest. <laughs> so, Michael, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, thanks for the, the introduction. As you mentioned, I'm currently with YouTube leading um, risk and compliance, but I, I join you with that extensive background across cyber and privacy. I started in tech as a programmer and went to law school, and from there spent all those years in consulting, tackling a variety of issues. And that's probably what I like most about privacy is you never know um, what's going to come across your your desk? There are a lot of challenges evolving in this space, and what it looked like ten years ago and what it'll look like uh, ten years from now uh, is completely different. And so, I've really enjoyed that aspect. And I guess, you know, in summary, I, I really seek out those new challenges and try and solve them for large organizations. Well, I think you have a pretty large organization in YouTube and Google to solve some challenges. Sounds like that'll keep you busy for a little while. That's right. <laughs> All right, so kind of let's just hop right into the show. So we're going to talk about a couple articles. I brought an article to the table, and Michael's also brought an article to the table. And the first one we're going to talk about is one from the International Association of Privacy Professionals, also known as the IAPP. They published an article late last year, and it talks about what changes may or may not come in the areas of privacy and cybersecurity as a result of the change in the executive branch. I read it. I thought it was a pretty insightful read. It touched on some good points. And uh, the link to the article is published in the show notes for those that want to read it for yourselves. I know you read it as well, Michael. Uh, what are your thoughts on the predictions that they, they had in there? Yeah, I, I do think the article is interesting, but I immediately paraphrased another common quote about predicting 
market booms and busts. You know, if you go back the past 10 years or so, privacy experts have correctly predicted 15 of the last two major changes in the privacy legal landscape, meaning, you know, there's there's always a prediction of a new change, always a prediction of a new law. And I think, you know, really, despite the quote being tongue in cheek, you know, you can find experts talking about how the, the changes are coming. Regardless of that, there's certainly truth, you know, across a horizon of, of a decade, we'll probably see some combination of federal and state activity that, you know, essentially provides privacy rights to U.S. citizens, whether you're in California or another state, and whether it's the Biden administration or, or the next administration or a series of, of active states, we shouldn't be reactionary here. We should be preparing for the changing tides. But, you know, I think to, to your question about whether we can expect to see more and what the aspect of the Biden administration could play here, did you catch the bottom of the article there was a second to the bottom, there was a quote from Axios around the spotlight will brighten on privacy, surveillance and hate speech online. And I think that's where the most interesting aspect here is for the Biden administration. You know, privacy and, and data use is being thought of more and more in the context of other domains. You know, how does privacy in this case fit into content moderation laws? As governments increasingly look at different aspects, like here it mentions hate speech or you know, reprehensible things like child sexual abuse material and how we get ahead of, of the share of that online, where does privacy play a role in helping to, to take down that type of content or limit those types of uploads? And where does it need to be adjusted? so that it doesn't, for example, prevent tracking to get to the source of that type of information. And similarly, I think, you know, personal data is, is increasingly being viewed as a competitive advantage. And so do we see an overlap between privacy and how the Biden administration may approach anti-competitive behaviors in the market? Will that be a theme in some discussions around competition law? Do we have questions around data sovereignty and how government, governments are thinking about data ownership and trade laws? And you could even argue at its core, some of the existing privacy practices already overlap with other areas. Like you could easily argue that a data subject access rights request, like notifying a company that they need to delete your data, that's a form of consumer protection. And so I think the mantle of you know, leading on privacy is firmly entrenched under the GDPR. That has set some amazing, you know, incredible changes. It would be difficult for the Biden administration to move the needle at least so mm -hmm. far as my crystal ball tells me, enough to really take it and, and, and be at the next level. But where I think they could play is identifying novel uses of privacy as a lever across one of these other domains. And that could change how we think about privacy and set a new global standard. Wow, you had a lot there to unpack. One of the things I kind of honed in on was a quote from Axios that you brought up. The, the hate speech online, it seems to just be growing in general. So, so do you think that any shift and change isn't a result of a new regime change, but more so just how the, how the internet is being used and how it's being used differently? So as a result, the next administration just has to do something about it? Or, or do you think it is going to just be a result of him focusing on trying to catch up with a lot of what GDPR has already set the stage for? Yeah, it, it's a fantastic question. When we talk about content moderation, at its core, it's about society's definition for the role of social media companies and, and other platforms where we engage online. And so we are trying to think about today as a society, as a community, as individuals, that exchange of ideas and how this new digital forum 
should operate and be governed and whether it should operate or be governed. I think there are a lot of evolving laws right now around content moderation. And they, they take a range on, uh, of stances on issues from there should be more, there should be little, there should be less, there should be none, there should be safe harbors. And we see differing opinions in the US as well as across jurisdictions. I think privacy also has an element or a role to play in that because it, you know they're, they're going to be in any case where you do moderation, in any case where you get to the source, you need an identifiable individual. And so there will be, by definition, overlap. How do we think about that? And how do we think about that role? And will the Biden administration use privacy as a lever, as part of a push toward content moderation? Interesting. So so given that content moderation is, is the focus area, and we see a lot of the major GDPR types of fines going to a large tech companies for, for the most part, and we see in the U.S. the first state-led privacy, or the, the largest state-led privacy was done in California, where Silicon Valley is and a lot of, a lot of big tech. Do you think that California will be setting the standard for other states? Do you think the government will eventually say, you know what, it's time for a national privacy law? We may not be able to catch up, but we, we have to do something because we're really far behind when it comes to privacy in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think California has done two things. One, it's shown that states can set a bar and that that bar can be quite high. And my understanding is the California legislature and, and the conversation around privacy isn't, isn't done with the California Consumer Privacy Act. And so we could mm. see continued evolutions here. The other thing is that it's applied a lot of pressure indirectly on the federal government to act because most companies don't want to deal with 50 different shades of a privacy law. They want to deal with one. And so if we're going to have a privacy law in California and you see activity in Washington and even my home state of Minnesota introduced a bill on the topic pretty recently. New York famously had one as well last year that didn't quite pass. And many other states, it's better to just have one. And so you end up with companies seeing all this activity and going to the federal government and the Biden administration and their legislators in federal Congress and, and saying, like, help us, you know, help us streamline so that we know one rule book and don't have to comply with the patchwork of laws across the U.S., yeah, I can I can definitely speak from experience. You know, on the security side of things, I have ISO, I have NIST, I have CSA Star, I have CIS, I have SOC 2. The list goes on and on. And there are justifications for that. There are various industries and various different countries that we have to work within. But let's not do this to ourselves internally, right? And if if you work in the US and you're an organization, you're probably doing business across states. Don't make me have to hire a team of privacy people to comply with California as well as, you know, New Mexico. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is, that is successful. So I know you wanted to talk about another area you want to talk about artificial intelligence and, and privacy. And I got to tell you, that's a sexy topic. So I'm curious to, on, on your thoughts and, and what you kind of brought to the table there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I knew this was the inaugural episode. I did not want to offer you a softball. You were getting warmed up. I, I thought uh, we could start strong with an article The Guardian recently published. So the title of the article is intentional to, to grab attention. And it is what a picture of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a bikini tells us about the disturbing future of AI. Now, the article itself doesn't talk much about Congresswoman Cortez, but instead it really focuses on four major themes or takeaways. And one is the AI was tasked with generating a body based on the face of a person. Pictures of men were auto-completed with a suit about 43% of the time. 
pictures of women were auto-completed with a bikini or a revealing top around 53% of the time. And the suggestion from this article, the takeaway is that this seems to suggest algorithm biases could reinforce stereotypes around gender-based societal roles and, and some of the negative inferences we can take from otherwise generic data, you know, uh, woman equals bikini or, you know, revealing top, man equals businessman, you know, corporate, suit, professional, and how AI is playing a role in key decisions that affect your life and how that type of information, that type of decision making can really disadvantage somebody. So I have a question for you, but first, before we jump in, I don't want to make assumptions of the audience and their exposure and experience to AI. Question for you, Jarek, why does this happen? Why can't we just tell AI to behave here? Why can't we just get rid of discriminations, you know, flip the switch and, and screen the results? So my experience with machine learning is primarily on the security side, but the, the reality of it is, is machine learning algorithms are trained to find patterns. And it's, it's all about the algorithm. You don't actually program the results. You, you program the process and that they use to make predictions and to make inferences. And over time, you make those inferences more accurate, but it's all about the data. So good data in, bad data out. And it really just depends on where they're getting their data sources from that are kind of resulting in some of the outcomes that we're seeing. Yeah, I think that's a, a great description. It, the the decision-making process is a bit of a black box, and that's one of the advantages because the AI can identify patterns that humans didn't detect over a massive amount of information that humans can't analyze. Absolutely. That's one of the advantages. But like you said, it, it's detecting patterns, and it's, it's hard to track. So it's very complicated. So my question for you, we could do like a 12-part series on this topic. But the high-level question for you is, do we care? Do privacy and security professionals play a role in challenging ethical AI use? And if so, what does that role look like? You know, this is a, this is a really interesting topic, and you're right. We could have multiple shows just on artificial intelligence. Who knows? We, we might, depending on the response we get here. But when you, when you look at machine learning and, and what it is and what it does, it completely contradicts and goes against a lot of the principles of GDPR. When you look at GDPR, there's a few principles that come to mind. The first one is minimization, right? So in data minimization, you're trying to reduce the amount of data that you have on a subject. Well, machine learning and AI are completely dependent upon large amounts of data. In fact, I believe the term is big data. So big data and data minimization completely don't, they don't go hand in hand with each other. And then using your article, right, and talking about how, you know, women that maybe, you know, have long hair, maybe auto-completed with bikinis because that's what the internet sees and there's, there's more images of that than women in suits, that talks about the accuracy of the data. And GDPR also calls out accuracy. You know, it, it's a double-edged sword because either the data about me is wrong and it's resulting in an inaccurate portrayal of me, or the data is right and now it's made an inference that is accurate and now it's storing sensitive information about me that I didn't give consent for, right? So I, I think this is a, a challenge that we're gonna have to address from a security perspective as well as a privacy perspective because we have sensitive data sitting in places about people now purely because an algorithm was able to make those inferences. So do you think there are, the path forward is purely preventative? that we be cautious and stop? Or is there also detective measures? Are there reactive measures we can put in place to 
to help screen and, and audit. What are your initial thoughts around that role? I think we need an, uh, a framework around privacy as well for artificial intelligence and machine learning and depending on the use case for that. If a company comes out and says our job, our role is to help creditors make decisions on who to give credit to based off of information we've scrubbed off the internet, we want to know well, what are you using with that information? Are you coming up with a profile? Are you determining what they like to do on the weekends? Are you determining what their health records look like? Are you determining if they're pregnant maybe because they made some purchases of something like prenatal vitamins, right? I mean, there's so many different things that we can make inferences from with, with the data that's out there. So we're going to have to figure out a way to just identify who is doing this. And if you are doing this, maybe you have to self-report it potentially. And then we have to have some level of governance around what you do with that data. And then there should probably be some GDPR-like processes in place for people to still have the right to be forgotten, should they want to be forgotten and the right to challenge the inference that was made about them. Yeah, I love that last line, the right to, to challenge the inference. That's where for privacy professionals, this is an easier answer because if you're dealing with the GDPR, it explicitly requires that that human review is offered in situations where AI has made a decision and that decision has a negative material result on, on you or, or on the data subject. So what that means, of course, is if you apply for a loan and your loan is automatically denied, you may have recourse under the G GDPR to get a human to actually review the file. That's an important mechanism that allows the data subject to screen AI decisions, but not so we can have all the advantages of AI, but not the, the disadvantages um, for those proactive data subjects. I also like your point about governance and, and having a thoughtful you know, steering committee or ethics board or something to that effect, or even involving internal audit. You know, I'll be curious to see if, if AI ethics is an internal audit aspect uh, moving forward for companies across industries that are, are using AI. So more to come on this, I'm sure. I think one of the problems that we're going to face is people don't know that this AI is gathering information about them. And, and more so than that, what they're doing with that information. Are they selling it to somebody else? Are, are they using it internally for, for whatever reason that, that they're gathering it for? So no one can actually challenge the results of it if they don't know that it's actually happening. And that's why we need, we need some level of self-reporting. This is that area where privacy professionals often get challenged by the business because sometimes the business is collecting information and they don't even know why they want to use it. They know that it could be valuable and they see the opportunity, the art of the possible around running some of these um, behavioral analyses and, and doing some machine learning type you know, pattern identification to learn things. But since it's a black box, we don't always know what that advantage is until we've run the information through the algorithms. And so that for a privacy professional to justify it up front is challenging, but the business uh, may have it as a priority. That's one of the, the main areas of tension we often see. So I have a question. You, you brought something to mind. I mean, I can go back to my days in the casino industry when we had CRM systems that did customer relationship management, right? So if someone would come into a casino, they would gamble, they would eat certain things, we would track all that, and then we would send them coupons for the same types of places that they went to. We made inferences about what they want, what they like to do. What would you say to someone that challenges and says, we already have CRM, it's, build, it's been building profiles for 20, 20 years now, why is this so much different? Because, you know, there's a little bit of technology added to the algorithm. Yeah, I think the value is in what 
the algorithm can identify that humans can't. And so there are two aspects of that. One is the volume. I can look at, you know, maybe as a human, only a couple a uh, dozen or hundred data points and really think carefully about them and deliberately and, and make connections. And it's very time consuming. Mm-hmm. An algorithm can look at millions overnight, no problem. And they can make rapid inferences across those, those data points from the first to the millionth in ways that it, just a human can't compete with. The other one is we have a specific logical line of thinking when we do our processing as humans. Our, our brains work a certain way. AI behavioral pattern matching provide some interesting aspects that sometimes catch us off guard and surprise us with decisions that we didn't know were even possible. And there's a you know famous AI example of being used in, in Go, the Chinese game. And I don't know if you've heard about this, Jarek, but it's a very, very highly strategic and nuanced game. And AI has finally been able to beat um, some of the world's best Go players, uh, yeah. which was a feat that was set as a high bar. And we've seen that in chess too, where you know, AI has, has been able to process all the moves available in chess and come up with strategies that at first look like they're terrible to the human eye, but then ultimately surprise us and win. And so it's playing chess with, with AI, coming up with those moves and analyzing them in ways that humans just can't, and doing so across the millions of data points are going to create patterns and, and outcomes and decisions that we couldn't see that are beneficial, but they're also going to create those negative ones as well. We, that's where it's imperative um, for us to think about our role in the context of data ethics and the context of how we do the right thing for the data subject. This is a fascinating subject. So the last thing that I always like to ask and that I'll I'll be asking all of our our guests are specific to your area in privacy. If someone's interested in getting into privacy and they want a career in privacy, what are some of the top two suggestions that you would suggest for someone that wants to get into your field? First is be curious. I think there are a lot of ways that you can become a privacy professional. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to go into in-house counsel somewhere into a law firm. There are a lot of different aspects of privacy, even on the engineering side, where we need people that can think about taking products to market that have privacy built in to the technical core of those things. And so be curious, figure out what is exciting to you about privacy, what makes this field interesting, and then apply that to your skills and see if there's a niche that you can really exceed and excel and and help us tackle some of these big issues. Um, The second thing is, I would say, you know, feel free to to network and reach out and, and go meet some privacy professionals down the street through the IAPP or other organizations, you know, through LinkedIn, et cetera. It's a small world that's rapidly growing larger, but I've found that many privacy professionals are willing to help you navigate and and help you think about where your career is headed and and where you wanna go. So be curious and then don't be shy about reaching out on how to best explore. All right, thank you. Underreported fact, privacy has negative unemployment, just like security. The field is growing. A lot of people uh, haven't looked at it as a career option. I have found that a lot of lawyers find themselves in privacy. What do you attribute that to? It's funny because when I was in law school, I wanted to get into privacy and it just wasn't really recognized. It was a bit of a niche. This is pre-GDPR and everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, So unless you were super into HIPAA, or you really wanted to dig into the data protection directive in Europe, it just wasn't a big field. And the so there weren't many attorneys before this big shift. And now there's a massive amount of need. And I think we're grappling with some of these major 
major issues about technology and society and technology and law and technology and innovation and privacy sits in the middle of all of that. And so it, it's, it's taken this change where it's suddenly a really fascinating field at the front and center of headlines and major media and, and across TV, et cetera. But there hasn't been a lot of attorneys practicing in this space. And so it's, it's taken some of the, the folks who are in other areas and open doors and there's probably more need than supply at this point. Well, well, Michael, thank you for your insights. Thank you for your experience, your knowledge. Keep fighting the privacy fight. It's definitely one that's going to be going on for a while. Thank you for joining the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions or ideas from today's show, share them with us by emailing cyberside at epicglobal.com. Don't forget to follow us on socials. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for Epic Global. Until next time, stay cyber smart. <music>